Um, so yeah, my name is Sanford. I am uh, a medical doctor and psychiatrist used to do maternity, also yoga teacher. At the moment, training in yoga therapy under Colin. And tonight, G is for gender dysphoria. So I'm going to let Colin introduce himself first. Um, my name is Colin. Um, I'm a yoga therapist, a yoga therapist trainer. i um, been working with people one-to-one -one for about 20 years now. Um, in different environments, in different situations. I'm so happy to be working with Stanford now just to be delivering yoga and yoga therapies ideas and Western medicine's ideas on different subject matters. Um, and we've chosen tonight uh, a kind of a delicate topic, gender dysphoria. Um, just the first question I think is, what's, what does dysphoria mean, Stanford? Um, so dysphoria, so not to be confused with dysmorphia, which I, for the longest time, and a little bit ashamed to admit, as a doctor, I actually got confused with. Uh, dysphoria actually means the discomfort, the feeling of distress, because something is incongruent. So when you match that with gender dysphoria, it means usually it's when you are born into one, I will use the word sex, and uh, you self-identify with a different, gender and then it's the stress and anxiety that is associated from that. Thank you. So what's what does so what does dysmorphia mean? Because we hear a lot about body dysmorphia. Um, so what is dis what's dysmorphia? So dysmorphia is about um, you're not comfortable with the imagery itself. So, you know, you're not like body dysmorphia, you're not comfortable about your body shape, body size, and uh, body self, body imagery. And uh, sometimes that can either be real in reality because there's scars or certain weights or certain shape against certain body parts as well. But sometimes it can also be imaginary. It might not be completely matching with what is in the reality. Okay. Thank you. Um, and at the moment, so something like gender dysmorphia, this, what, what's, what's Western medical perspective on this? Okay, so you're asking me all the hard questions straight away, fine. Uh <laughs> you save some up, I've got, I've got a whole load that I'm just kind of like, you know, I've got, I've, got, I've got some other ones later on, like, you know, something like, um, is there such a thing as male and female? I mean, come on. It's, I was like, this is not going to be the whole night, is it? The good ones a bit later, but I mean, let's just start with some easy ones. Like what, 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 what I mean, what does, what does Western medicine say about why is it a condition, you know? So there are quite a few different, um, <coughs> quite a few different standard or classification why, uh, what gender this, is going to be. So mm -hmm. usually it's about how behaviorally the, per the individual or the patient, um, I will explain that later, um, like to say dress in their opposite sex or opposite genders, clothes, uh, toys, uh, typical behavior that is expected or play, especially when they um, are very young onset in children, they prefer the opposite gender playmate, uh, typical activities. So say very, very typically girls would be like playing with um, doorhouse, um, Barbies, um, and boys will be machine guns and things like that. So that is the physical, uh, that's the typical behavior. And also at the same time, that seems to be an aversion towards their assigned 
gender or sex uh, behavior. So it is quite normal to expect a young girl or boy to occasionally play with, you know, especially if they're brothers and sister, they will play with the other kind of toys because they're curious, they want to explore, they want to play. I think one of the main thing is they get a little bit adverse to what is expected of them per se. So I think that is quite typical of a few of the criteria, especially if you look at diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorder, a bit of a mouthful. If you want to call it, yeah, just Google DSM. Uh, five is the current edition from 2013. Um, and there's also the International Classification of Disease, the ICDs 10, and I think the 11 is coming out quite soon. So th that is usually, um, what we're understanding of it. And I think at the moment, it, you know, in modern days, there's quite a um, crossover between gender dysphoria and transgender or, um, or transsexuality um, in terms of terminology. And I think maybe later on, I'll go into it a little bit more, but I say, I'll, I'll throw the question back into Colin for now. What is the yoga understanding of gender dysphoria? Okay, so, We've got the first thing, which is we've got the, the word dysphoria, and you define dysphoria as unease. You define dysphoria as a, a general dissatisfaction in life. So we've got this idea of dysphoria, so this unease, we've got a general dissatisfaction in life. There isn't, there's some kind of not a, not a right match internally that's happening. There's some kind of mismatch going on. And in fact, all yoga philosophy is about dysphoria. It's about the fact that there is this deep mismatch that's going on within the system. And yoga puts the individual first. It actually firstly puts the individual and says, look, you're a unique person. You're completely and utterly unique. It then puts the dysphoria next. It says there is this disease, there's this, this kind of unease, there's this something going on that you just don't feel and one of the, my clients summed it up very well they looked at me and they said i've never ever felt okay and it's a really powerful statement when someone says that that i've never ever actually felt okay and so we first we have the person and the person is a priority then we have this imbalance that's happening then we have the condition and so the first thing that yoga says is it, is it looks at the individual and it's prioritized the individual the next thing is that it says that every experience and feeling that you have is valid is true and is real and is important and this is a very very powerful statement because it's the starting point for lots of different things it goes against lots of other different philosophies which says actually the feelings that you have are imagination they're not real the whole thing is a complete illusion so yoga's starting point is that actually the feelings that you have the dysphoria that you have and dysphoria itself is real and it's a real situation and it's a huge opportunity so specifically what we don't find within a text like let's say yoga sutra we don't find any reference points to genders whatsoever and i love that because what it means is that the concept of just dysphoria firstly is across the board 
whether you classify in any which shape and form to any human being, it's there. The second is that yoga provides the root or the safety valve in order for someone to actually accept their reality and their perspective and come to terms with it so that they can live a healthy life in the world. And for me, having that root map with everyone being an individual and having that promise that actually we can be okay with things is super helpful. Does that make any sense, Dan? Makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I picked up on two points that I think is very interesting. But before I go into them, I'm just going to say, I think both Colin and I feel a little bit uneasy on this topic itself. And I think I, I won't speak for Colin, I'll speak for myself. Because compared to all the other like six topics that we've talked about, where I have more of an experience of, I think gender dysphoria is truly the first topic that I personally can't relate I think it's probably a good word because I, I didn't experience it I never experienced it and I just also realized that I very um I mean, probably subconsciously wore a blue top which probably not very sensitive I probably should go for a slightly more gender neutral or gender non-associated color but it is my favorite color um but I, I think I think so please do forgive me if anyone find anything I share tonight a little bit offensive or you know I said about the wrong thing I, as always I encourage you to put things into the chat if you feel like you need to correct me or you know you want to send me a direct message or reach out to me later just to you know teach me a little bit more I really really welcome them because I yeah I, 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 I this is the one topic that I hasn't got the most knowledge of so I do apologize now the things I was going to pick up on Colin's speech was actually you said um, that and, uh, you know, uh, your client saying she never feel comfortable. And then later on, you recognize that every feeling is true. Now, as part of my research for tonight, I was watching The Danish Girl, uh, the movie from 2015. Um, it has got quite a lot of uh, you know, recognition because it was um, recognized by the Academy Award. So most of you probably have heard of it. But I, when I was watching that movie, I, I, I actually came to a very good conclusion about what gender dysphoria is. Um, very earlier on in the movie, uh, I'm not gonna give it too much away, um, but it will be a bit of spoiler alert. The Danish painter, Lily Elbow. So she said to then her wife, cause at the time she was still um, biologically male, um, there's nothing wrong with me. Don't let them do this to me. And there was a, such a conviction about it. And I couldn't quite see the distress. Um, again, it wasn't a documentary, but I do believe the acting. But later on, through, through her subject, through, uh, sorry, through her being subject to a series of examination, uh, consultation with different doctors or different friends and family, one of her, uh, one of her old um, childhood friend actually came like, what has happened to you? Like, you know, how have you changed? And I think actually I can see that this stress start building, you know, almost like when you are so sure of yourself and then suddenly the society or, you know, the medical society, or the, like the professional body, start doubting what you presented with. I think that's when the distress phase start to happen. So I thought that was very interesting how it related back to what Colin's example is, is actually sometime the conviction within oneself, you know, when we are really sure of who we are, actually wasn't the cause of the distress. Sometimes the conflict when what you're sure of yourself compared to what society, I'm gonna make it slightly break bigger, like community or society put against it, that is when it's causing the con distress. Colin, would you agree or disagree or neutral? 
Well, I think what you've just highlighted is the paradigm of conflict that yoga addresses. Um, firstly, it's to do with who I think I am versus who I actually am versus who I want to be versus who I can actually be versus who other people see me as and who I think other people see me as. So there seems to be this kind of this sort of paradigm of, of these different viewpoints that are all basically constructed from different aspects of identification. And it's the way that, and it's through identification that we start to get reference points about what we feel is, is comfortable for us and gives us a stable sense of our reality and perspective. And so yoga starts with this idea. It starts with this idea of how we put these things into the ground. And it starts to propose numbers of different processes to look at shifting our perspective so that we can be much more comfortable with who we are, no matter what other people say to us, no matter what we say to us as well. So in a way, what we've got is we've got situations where we're creating different labels and identities to try and describe and articulate in a very primitive way, because remember how primitive we are with regard to articulating feelings. You know, my, the words that I'm using right now to try and communicate with you, Stanford, are, are really quite poor, you know what I mean? But this is how we are, is that I'm trying to construct these words and trying to put these words together in a sentence that have a meaning that you can hold on to that then link to the feeling that's deep within me associated with what I'm trying to express. And when there is dysphoria, it's almost that you, 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 there there's a mismatch of what's going on deep inside to what's coming out and how we can express and articulate that. And then what that means to us and then what that means to someone else. And then how these sort of, how we're in, in our cumbersome way, trying to communicate this sort of distress that's happening. I don't know if that makes any sense. It makes total sense. And I think even on the most basic level of language, it can be, as you said, primitive. Mm -hmm. Like the, the terms gender and sex, I think for most people, and I think I have to admit, un until I really researched into the area, I would thought they are one and the same. But actually, even just that very small difference in word make a huge lot of difference. So sex is kind of our biological makeup is what a chromosome tell us. And of course, I'm now being quite general <laughs> and broad because the sex that we're born into is not necessarily what display outwardly. There are rare genetic uh, disposition where, like say the Y chromosome, so the male chromosome didn't get displayed. And actually you are born chromosomically a man, but outwardly you become a woman. And that that is rare, but it does happen. So I'm just gonna say general, generally speaking, sex is what your XY chromosome tell you. So XX is woman, XY is a man. What's gender is more a self uh, identity. Like how do you identify with it? And I think one of the best examples that I can think of about how it can actually 
cause a problem is, say, ethnicity. So I, I'm 100% Chinese by biological trait. Both of my parents are from Shanghai. They are from Chinese. So biologically, I'm 100% Chinese. But I actually lived in this country since I was 13. So uh, I'm now 30-something, so I'll let you do the math. And, you know, I, I do identify myself as British, as well as the Chinese. So I am both. But when a person meets me without having in-depth knowledge or even heard me speak, probably just assume I'm Chinese. So I think, I think it's as simple as that. So I, again, I wouldn't say, because I may get a little bit annoyed if people keep telling me that I'm not British, but I'm, I'm not gonna be too distressed or anxious about it. So I can't say that I can completely sympathize and empathize with people who has, you know, gender dysphoria. But I think, I think, as Colin was saying, identity, there, there is incongruent in so many different ways. But now I'm so interested to hand it back to Colin so he can tell us what yoga says about how we can deal with this incongruence and this stress and this fear sometimes. The first thing is that um, the only way to exist and find a reference point within the world is through identity. So, and we create identities at every single level and reference points at every single level in order to construct our reality. So it becomes very necessary to have identity and reference points. The journey presented is in four steps. The first step is to do with understanding the reality of how these identifications are actually being constructed. So we call this heyame. Um, it means that we need to understand the, the reality, the symptoms that are being, um, the symptoms that are being actually expressed. So what you mentioned is you mentioned distress. Quite often it's a very, very deep, and I mean a very deep emotional constriction. And this deep emotional constriction has other knock-on effects within the system. Often the thinking of the person and what they associate with and the things that they associate with and how they associate with things will be tainted by a lot of the identities and rules they've put in place. And the identities and rules that we put in place, some of them are learned and a lot of them come from our environment. So we've got sort of 75% environmental, 25% inherited. And a lot of the rules that we lay down, we actually think are fixed. We believe that these are fixed rules about something, the way that something should be. And then we construct our life based on those rules. However, through the process of yoga, what we're looking to do is be aware of how we come to interact with ourselves, how we interact with the world. So there's this kind of movement of interaction, understanding the different rules that we're laying down, how we're interacting with those rules and how those rules can actually be slightly changed so we can be more comfortable, more content with who we are. So the bigger picture is that actually we can be content or we can accept who we are no matter the situation. And this is a... From my experience, it's a long-term process. It's not a short, fast fix. I've been working with someone recently and we've been working together for one year and there's been strong dysphoria. And finally, she's been able to say, I, I have 
you know, I have a good feeling about myself and I can continue and move forwards. To get to that point, there has to be a series of questions, a series of tasks that are given where the person is starting to look at their interactions, to be aware about how they're interacting with themselves, interacting with others, how these actions are tainted with different things, often tainted with anger. And quite often this happens in these type of situations. There's a lot of anger involved and a lot of attachment to identity involved. And this attachment to identity and this anger, which has a strong desire to it, often come to the foreground and actually stop the person from moving forwards within their life. So for me, this is the starting point of the process is to understand the reality of the situation, which means to understand the symptoms that are being presented, to understand how the person, you have to remember, it's completely unique. So I can give you lots of different ideas, but the way that all of this is going to be constructed and put together to help someone on the journey is going to be completely unique. Completely unique. I don't know, does that make sense, Stanford? Yes, um, always, always make a lot of sense. And I think, I think the, the emotional constriction or actually the anger that you sp spoke about um, is very, it's I've, almost is the core of where the problem is. Um, and I think part of it, again, I'm going to bring it back to like a societal point of view where when gender, I'm going to use the correct term now, gender, uh, I know we no longer champion that, which is a good thing, but gender is no longer seen as a binary thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not either male or female, it's actually a spectrum. It can be a range. Then that kind of take the expectation away a little bit, take the take the pressure off the lid a little bit, so to speak, because I think it can be very difficult when, when there's only two categories in the world, you either A or B, you can't be anything else, you can't be anything in between. And it feels very limited. You know, for some people, maybe when you go to a department store and saying, I'm going to buy some pants, if there's only two choices, it's a comfort. Some people do find that, and that's absolutely nothing wrong about that. However, personally, I like a little bit more choice. Like sometimes some of them are low crotch, some of them are tighter, some of them are tighter, some of them are really relaxed jeans. Like, uh, Having, having a choice to be able to express yourself or a range on how to express yourself, I think is, is, is much better freedom in our society and community. And, and also it makes it more beautiful. It, it gives, you know, the freedom for people to express so that, you know, different things can be created, art, movies, music, and so on and so forth. And I think that is something in a slightly general, um, broad, broader term should be regarded so to speak um, and I think in a way it it kind of helps a little bit back in the 80s 90s I think when the term cis and trans comes in to play um, so cis again I learned this during a lot of my research as well so I, if I'm explaining it to people who already have a lot more knowledge I'd apologize so cis if you are identifying um, very clearly with your biological identity is cis so cis men or women if you are trans men uh, or women then you are identifying yourself kind of the other gender that you didn't born into. Um, you didn't get experience gender, which I think is a really good word, experience gender, um, which is used by the uh, DSM-5 category instead of born into or biological, because it makes it more 
experiential is more uh, behavior and it's more societal community based one and i think when we were doing the promotion for this talk uh, within our team we actually have a little chat about this where this gender dysphoria means trans sexuality or transgender and we we kind of almost have well half an hour <laughs> debate on this topic itself because transgender or transsexualism doesn't always have to cause distress hmm. you know just being identified with the gender that you're not experienced since birth doesn't actually automatically cause anxiety and distress as i've hopefully explained a little bit earlier on um, so the two things are not quite one and the same, although most classification do. And in some way, I think that added to the problem, you know, as medical bodies, we, if we as doctors, I have to say, really reflect, if I see them as one and the same, I naturally assumed this group of our population will be experiencing distress and discomfort. It's like anyone who walked through the door wearing blue socks, will be experiencing discomfort. And that's almost a little bit dangerous because it, it not necessarily. Some people are very happy to know that what, gen, what gender they are born into, you know, they, they are identifying with. And yes, they might have to go for a few extra things, maybe gender reassignment surgery, maybe, um, I don't know, cross-dressing to help them to find comfort into the society, but not necessarily ha has an innate disease. And I, I think that disease or disease actually sometimes put on top of them a little bit. Colin, do you have anything to say to that? I do actually, because when you were saying that, it made me think about the opening third part of the Sankey character. And also the fourth chapter of Yoga Sutra um, and the way that as a yoga teacher or yoga therapist, you work with other people and the first when you're working with people it's no judgment absolutely they should feel no judgment at all from you and I mean no judgment it means that if you're okay with it even if they're not okay with it it starts to be okay because part of the process of working with different symptoms that are being presented by people is being able to hold them in a space of no judgment where they feel held and safe that they can move forward and investigate the feelings that they've got. And so I was thinking about this, this idea that just as you were speaking that came to me with regard to no judgment and the traps associated with classifications about how things should be or how things ought to be. And quite often, we don't realise how those things are actually imposed on us or we adopt the view of something based on how we think it ought to be or should be. And it's a trap. It's a real trap because it keeps us very, very narrow. And the spectrum that you were talking about is one of acceptance that each of us is a different, is a completely different person and is entitled to our different perception. And we need to respect someone else's perspective completely. And 
so this was coming to me as you were kind of talking about that. And then I had this other vision about um, the beginning of, and this is, you know, when you're working with people, this is what you feel, you know, you, their, their experience is very valid. It, it's, it's, a, it's a valid, very valid experience, but we need to respect that experience and not judge it at all. And so for me, this is a bit, very much a starting point. And the other thing that made me smile a little is um, I was just thinking about uh, the opening of the Sankhya Karika, which sort of, it lays the foundation for yoga philosophy, as you know, and also the, also Ayurveda as well. And you know, some of the guys here are doing work with me on the Sankhya Karika at the moment. And one of the lines is, is it, it says that the material world, so it defines the material world as being everything that constructs your material body, your mind, your thoughts, your emotions, your intelligence, your identities, your feelings, the whole of the material world can be divided again and again and again and categorized again and again and again and labelled again and again and again and it there is it can be in the most incredible spectrum and then it gives a line and says well this is not who you are and it's kind of a bit powerful because it's who we think we are it's how we construct who we actually think we are and so when you were talking about that i just kind of i was just sort of reflecting on on this on these areas so thank you for that that's okay and i and i'm reflecting on the term label and i think maybe we mentioned that that term or that thing over a few talks and i always wanted to talk, say something about it so maybe i just will now and i think i don't know about you 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 please do share your experience but i sometimes feel like labeling it's helpful uh, as a medical doctor, patients come to me a lot of the time to find labels. That label is called diagnosis. I've been having this pain. I've been having this tightness there. I've been having this um, lump and bulge. They want to know what it is. And, and the name that I'll give, them, I'll give them, the diagnosis itself is a label. Mm. And usually, very often in the beginning, I find that to be helpful because almost like, oh, parts of the puzzles, a piece of the puzzles finally falling into the right place. They know what it is. There's a like easing off. You can see the shoulder going. You can see you know, the lines between the eyebrows easing off a little bit. It's like, oh, that's what it is. And yes, we can start working on the problems and the patient will be happy for a little bit. But then fast forward a few years down the line, I don't know, sometimes I find actually the label is the thing that's causing the, ten the tension again, you know, the, the shoulder growing up and up and up and the, the, the lines between the eyebrows going deeper once again. Because that label, as you said, very beautifully in, and yourself and in yoga, um, it becomes an identity. I have sciatica, I can't move anything, okay? I have a flat foot, so I can't walk or run. Okay, I have diabetes, I can't have that, I can't come to that party. Okay. And I very often, I don't know, maybe I'm going a bit too deep in my clinic room, but I very often things like, is that, is that true? Like, is it really true that just because you have lower back pain quite often, you can't move anything? 
Is it quite true that you have a car accident 10 years ago that you can no longer say do yoga? Uh, is, or is that just like our gender and you know, other experience? Would that be a spectrum? Maybe there's a little bit of exercise that you can do. Maybe, maybe a select for or handful of parties that you can go to as diabetes or as, as a diabetic patient. When I, I, I do often wonder when does that label help you to ease that tension and when and when is the pivotal point when the label actually gives you more tension? Colin, what about you? What were your case study telling us? Well, all you did, my case, every case study has exactly this. And the line from Yoga Sutra, Vrittaya Panchataya Krishna Krishna, it's the idea that every single label, every single identity that we put down, every single memory that is born out of experience, every single way that we use our imagination, every way we cognize everything, whether we understand it correctly or misunderstand it, everything can either be hurtful to us or not hurtful. And the line is going to be different from each person. And often we don't realize when something has become hurtful because we're so used to it. And the laying down of patterns is something that is pivotal to yoga. Now, I discussed symptoms early on, and sort of the first step for me is, is looking at symptoms. The second is looking at causes. And you mentioned so well about the environment and how there is this sort of this impact from other sources with regard to the laying down of patterns and experience and labels. In yoga, we don't dig in a box. What that means is that the past is done. We're not gonna sit there looking again and again. And we actually look at two steps as being disastrous. The first one is the step of excuses. Okay, and this is, again, this is directly from the second chapter of Bhagavad Gita, is that excuses, this way that we actually stop from stepping up and facing our reality, because only when we face our reality, we can step and move forwards. So the first thing we do is we create excuses, huge numbers of excuses. Uh, Dr. Stanford, I, I'd love to see you this evening, but unfortunately I can't. My, um, my unicorn is um, just out at the moment. I've got to gather it and get it back in. I'm really sorry. Can we reschedule for another time? Um, I'll, I'll message you next week to reschedule. Is that okay? So we come oh. with... <laughs> no. So we actually come up with excuses and, and you see a good therapist needs to be able to outmaneuver excuses that people put in. And when you're dealing with such a sensitive subject matter, such as this, you need to be aware about how people lay down certain traps so they become excuses. Okay, it's kind of interesting. So this is this is the first thing that people do is they create lots of different excuses about things, lots of distractions around things and pointing in different directions. The second thing is blame. Okay, so they go into different blame zones and different blame zones is when they point fingers in different ways, shapes and forms. So it's like my parents, you did this, that happened. This is like this. I'm like that. You're like this. We go through this whole kind of blame routine. And it appears in lots of different ways, shapes and forms, but both of these two need to be outmaneuvered in order for someone to start to go on the journey with regard to what they need to face with regard to dysphoria. Does that make any sense? 
It does. I'm, I'm smiling and laughing here because I, I, I don't know why. And please don't take, don't be offended. I rem your speech remind me of a birthday card joke that I read some time ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, don't, don't ask for the past. It's all gone and done. Don't yeah. ask for the future. It hasn't arrived yet. Yeah. Don't ask for the present. I haven't got you any. <laughs> <laughs> And, and the, but in some way, I because the more you speak, and that's why I think it reminded me of it. It has a lot of philosophical truth in it. The past is gone, the future hasn't arrived, mm -hmm. and your present can't be given by someone else. You know, it is your present, mm -hmm. and you have to you know, give yourself that. You kind of have to own it. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's why I'm laughing here. It's like, actually, that card was much deeper than I thought. Or maybe I'm reading too much into things again. Um, so, yeah, I think. Okay, going to bring it back a little bit more to the topic that we're going to talk about as well. And I think part of the labeling that doesn't help in terms of gender dysphoria is also the sexuality. You know, in, as a, so I'm going to go into male and female gender because otherwise it's going to be a, even more confusing for myself. Um, so if they're early onset, so if they, you know, if they identify like as a trans community earlier on in their development, very often they will either identify themselves, if they are male, they will identify themselves as gay or homosexual. Mm -hmm. If they are later on set, they will identify themselves actually as lesbians. So interestingly, you know, it depends on what time study have shown, what time and when this, um, the gender dysphoria is realized, or I, I should say the transgenderism is realized, it seems to have an effect on the sexuality and vice versa for women it's the same, sorry for females the same, if they are early onset they more often identify themselves as lesbians and if later on uh, onset they're more likely to identify themselves as gay. And I think I bring this up because I think this is an additional layer to the whole thing where if the societal gender spectrum is already a little bit confusing for them. Now they have to own their sexuality. It's going to be a little bit more difficult because where are they on that spectrum? And also from, for the, from their partner, who, who, who is my loved one? Are they male? Are they female? Are they gay? Are they lesbian? Like, or are they, are they you know, heterosexual? It, 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 these are all... Um, you know, some of the many questions that they had to go through, and I do really feel for them when I say this, because I, you know, just thinking about it and just writing it down in paper is confusing enough, and I can't really begin to imagine what it is like to live with that. And I think truly this is one of the reasons why I felt it's important for us to include this topic in the ABC webinar, despite the fact that it's, it's not the easiest to go, because um, Part of my role, I, I, again, as a medical profession, um, actually to increase the awareness of, you know, what we say is the minority or the LGBTQ community or, you know, any other minority in our normal societal spectrum is important because I, I, I won't ask any of you to, you know, try to experience what they experience, but I think just to be aware that there are different experiences out there is important. And I think that's part of the reason why I, why I gone for this topic. Um, but yeah, Colin, may, may I ask, I know I suggest this topic and you may or may not have begrudgingly agree. Why, why did you agree to do this topic? I felt I had no choice. Um, you, uh... Hey! <laughs> no, I'm, 
you know why I agreed to do this topic is that for me it's about individuals and as a yoga therapist and someone that's working with people that are in very difficult situations whether it's end-of-life situations whether it's dealing with cancer whether it's dealing with something deep like this situation to have the capacity to be there and to not to reduce dependency on someone like myself but increase the confidence in someone to deal with the issue that they're going through no matter the label that issue has it's for me it's all about the individual and yoga is all about the individual it, it's actually i feel it's actually it, it's anti-tradition it's it's anarchic in its way it's going against absolutely everything and it's giving power back to a person and for me to begin to start to in a very clumsy way get the message across about how this is possible is the reason why I'd love to do this and why I'm here doing this because when we sit and think about it we start to see how how patterns are laid down for a person how their belief system is what they believe what they don't believe what they think they know and also how they don't know what they don't know how they're aware of some things but yet they don't believe that the things they're not aware of actually don't exist when they actually do exist and to take someone on a journey which is their journey and you're side by side with them almost like in their pockets to give them tasks, give them direction, use the tools of yoga which are there to help someone to be more comfortable with themselves so that actually they move from a place where they are deeply agitated, deeply agitated, to a place where they actually have contentment, a place where they there isn't any good quality of mind but actually they can find a good quality of mind that actually there is no peace within themselves, but they can actually find some peace. Where they don't feel free, they feel oppressed in every which way, shape and form, and they can actually find some freedom. And for me, that's the promise of yoga. It, it, it takes that route. Oh, by the way, I just been reminded, um, sorry to cut in, um, that we now set up the ABC membership, uh, yoga, and uh, yoga and Health membership. So if you want to catch up on any of these topics that we've talked about, also you will have extra opportunity to ask us questions outside of these webinar setting as well. Uh, so if you're interested, I think the link will be coming up in the chat box very soon. Um, but like coming back to why I was nodding quite furiously earlier on, I think... Uh, some of the things that you said really hit home. First word was dependence, which very, very much relate to the topic of labels. Um, 
you know, depending on to the uh, onto the label that we've been given or we are giving ourselves. Um, but yes, also to create that that kind of, as you say, almost like a companion for each person's journey is very important because we know um, LGBTQ community individuals, as a member myself as well, um, we are aware that there are more mental health issues. Um, you know, there are more stress, isolation, anxiety, depression, suicidal rates is higher, uh, poor self-esteem, which can come out in many, many different ways, sometimes like eating disorder very often substance abuse or alcohol dependency, again, the word dependency. So, so it is important issues where, where, you know, your discomfort, your disease is not uh, resolved. You very often turn to another outlet or turn to something else to provide that, that high or that comfort, even though it's false, even though it's not a true contentment, you, you still look for them. Um, and I have to say medically, we try to help, we try to help. Um, we have drugs, hormones, which actually, thank God, we don't use very often because um, we can use hormones to slow down puberty so that we give like, if, especially if it's early onset for children and teenagers time to decide what happened. But of course, as you can imagine, holding someone's puberty has really big knock on effect later on. So usually a special court order for us to do that. Surgery, um, fortunately, in a lot of ways provide huge comfort because you're physically reassigning someone into their um, innate, I would say innate um, gender, you know, their, their own desired and wishing to experience gender. Um, of course, that has a lot of side effects and complications and also um, uh, bad long-term consequences, but actually in a lot of ways, it is one of the best tools that we have. Unfortunately, also irreversible. So and these individuals tend to go through a lot of psychological counseling, psychiatry assessment, um, psychotherapy, psychoanalysis to make sure that is actually something that they really want. Because I think one of the big thing, as, as well as any other plastic surgery is regret. Once you've done it, uh, I wish I haven't done that. You know, we all felt that, you know, in some way, shapes or form in our life before, but hopefully with something that's slightly less permanent and also less personal. And I think to have an operation on yourself, I don't know if any one of you have a tattoo that you really regret, you might be able to relate in some small forms, but, you know, have a major surgery done and then regret afterward, that will cause even more problems. And so, yeah, so that's kind of like the medical way. How about you, Colin? What, how, 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 what do you do as the pocket man for, for these individuals? Okay, so we come down to either physical issues, psychological issues or spiritual issues. And the underlying view is that the subtle, the sukshmashura influences the gross, so what we see on the surface comes from something deep underneath, which means that we're starting to take people on a journey. Using the tools of yoga, we tend not to focus on the issue itself. And I know that this sounds very bizarre, but we don't focus on the issue because we don't 
reinforce the relationship with the issue. We look to start to lay down a new foundation, a new pattern, a new way of working that supports the person's confidence so that they can face the issue themselves. Now, what this means is that we start to begin to understand the person. We understand their thinking and their relationship with that situation. And then we give tasks, real life tasks and exercises with practices that reinforce a new way of working. We're not looking at hitting the issue head on. This is Abhyasavaragya Abhyantanirodha. It means that in order for us to be comfortable with something, we have to lay down and practice laying down a new way of working, which means that in lots and lots of situations, we're giving people different tasks and different options, which provide them with different routes and patterns to free up a number of the rules and labels they put in place that are causing them the constriction within themselves. So it's a kind of, it's, it's unique in the way that it's working, but it means that as a therapist, yoga therapist, we need to know a way around both the gross and subtle realm and what the possibilities are with regard to the tools, meditative tools, mantra tools, visualization tools, touching tools, who to use what for and why to use it, how to talk to someone, how to give them tasks so that they can engage with someone else in a good framework, so that they can engage with themselves with a good framework and change the pattern of engagement. So the goal is to be comfortable with who we are. And it's complementary. It works alongside anything else. And I think I I really echo that. Where again, I I wouldn't even begin to say this is my suggestions for people who go through gender dysphoria because I truly don't understand uh, or never experienced it myself. But I think through working issues of my own, I mean, we all have some and some of my anger and things like that. I think my take home lesson for myself is, you know, whatever problem I have, at the end of the day, whenever I really think about it, they're all because of me, they're all caused by myself. Um, you know, I'm angry with someone else. Yes, they have done something wrong, but ultimately I'm the one who decided to be angry with that person. And I think especially with working with anger, um, when, when you're angry about someone else or are angry with someone else, it almost become a little bit irrelevant rather the other person know you're angry or not. Realistically, it really doesn't matter rather they know or not because they are very happily living off their life and, you know, with all of the knowledge, which again, fuel my anger. And then I realized, you know, the only one who is damaged by this, anger is myself and recognizing that this emotion doesn't associate with a right or wrong because you know I'm, I'm, I'm a person as we gone through in the very first talk having a 
a, a range of emotions, pretty much mean being human. But then holding onto this emotion, is it beneficial to me? Is it damaging to me? I think at that point, I need to learn to make a decision. Rather, I want to keep this for myself or I'm just holding onto it because it's more comforting than changing. Because ultimately, I, I mean, again, I would not pretend that I'm more experienced than anyone here, but I, I try changing other people. I very seldomly succeed. I can succeed a little bit more in changing myself. Again, not very often, but I, I tried and sometimes I can more than just my hairstyle. Um, but, you know, I, I can change a few things about myself. And sometimes that makes things a little bit better because I learn to progress a little bit more or I learn a few new tools and skills to deal with life situation. Because life is unpredictable. Who knows what pandemic will bring us tomorrow? Maybe a meteor will hit or maybe, you know, the vaccine work and all the COVID disappear. We never know, but the only thing that I have a little bit more control of is myself. And I think that's why I echo with Colin very much. I think for everyone involved, whatever shapes, form of your dysphoria may be, I will encourage you to hold on to that phrase I just learned from the movie today from the Danish girl. There's nothing wrong with me because you know, whatever traits that we have and we carry that we're born with or we develop into, they are part of us. And each trait has its advantage and disadvantage. And sometimes the advantage becomes disadvantage in certain situations and sometimes vice versa. And I think ultimately, if we can learn to, oh, okay, I'm going to say, stop saying we, I'm going to say I, if I can learn to tell myself, that's actually nothing wrong about me. That's not much I need to change. Maybe it's just my perception of myself I need to change. That may make me a bit happier. Sorry if I'm rambling. I, I'm, I'm not sure if this is relevant or if this is slowly going into my cloud of imagination. Colin, I'll let you wrap up. I, I agree with you completely. I mean, we've only... The way that we learn about ourselves is because of our interaction with other people. And by... And even... And I was discussing this with... The meditation group is that in meditation everything about yourself is exposed by the interaction you have with what you're meditating on and so again and again it's the observation of the way that we come to hold the things that we hold in our life and beginning to understand the like you mentioned so well the attachment the sticky things the desire, the wanting, the way that we identify those things. And whether they're hurtful to us or not hurtful to us. And something like anger is a beautiful thing. It's, it, it's, it's an unsatiated desire. It's desire that hasn't, I want something and I don't get it. And so it, it's, it is a beautiful subject matter. And sometimes something like anger, as I've discussed with someone recently, gives you the power to do incredible things and you actually don't want your anger taken away. And at other times that anger just consumes and burns and destroys you. So, you know, with what you're saying, I understand, you know, and I've seen it again and again and again. And it's, again, it's individual with regard to the decisions and the approaches and listening to what people want. I remember someone looking at me and going, do not take my anger from me. 
it protects me and it gives me power don't take it you know and, and it's stuff like that that you just kind of as a yoga therapist you have to listen to you have to really understand that actually in one way it can be really helpful to them in another way it's very protective and it, it, it brings them forward and I think with any kind of dysphoria any sort of situation we need to step back and really understand it clearly understand the person's story completely and be engaged with them as part of the journey forward and that whatever they're presenting it's okay it's really okay so i just want to say thank you so much for joining us this evening thank you stanford so much I, i've learned so much from you this evening so thank you and vice versa. Thank you everyone for staying tonight with this sticky subject. Thank you very much. I think next one, what are we talking about next time? Actually it's for... Hypermobility. Right, see you next time. <laughs> so we're going to be discussing hypermobility next time, which is um, when you can get your legs over your head and... I can't. <laughs> No, so discussing approaches to hypermobility. Um, so we'll be looking at um, the structure of a person with hypermobility. Um, and we'll be also looking at Western ideas on hypermobility and also yoga's perspective on hypermobility as well. Okay, so thank you so much for coming guys and we really look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Bye.